Robin Thicke had a controversial best-selling single, Blurred Lines. One interpretation of the song infers the blurred lines are between a good girl and a bad girl. Can the zoning code be a blurred line between what makes a city vibrant, equitable, and sustainable, or one that makes a city economically depressed? I'm Robert Colangelo, and this is Green Sense, where we bring you eco-innovations that improve the quality of life. My guest this week is M. Nolan Gray, author of a recently released book, Arbitrary Lines, How Zoning Broke the American City and How to Fix It. Nolan, welcome to Green Sense. Thanks so much, Robert. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, Nolan, you are uh, uh, the research director for California YIMBY. Uh, what does YIMBY stand for? It stands for Yes in My Backyard. Uh, so, of course, for, for many decades, NIMBY politics or not in my backyard has, has really dictated the growth of our cities. And we want to say, you know, there are certain types of development, there are certain types of housing, there are certain types of bicycle and pedestrian infrastructure that we know we want. And so we advocate on behalf of that. You're an affiliated fellow with the Mercatus Center of George Mason University. Is that all still true? I Yeah. So I was a professional city planner in New York City uh, and uh, trained as a city planner. I went to Rutgers for my planning degree, and uh, it's been great. Well, today's discussion is very timely because uh, I travel a lot, and our once great cities like San Francisco, New York, Chicago, talk about your solution. So let's start simple. What is the intent of zoning codes? So zoning uh, is a small part of the broader planning framework in most U.S. cities, and it's doing two things. It's taking every single parcel in the city uh, and it's segregating uh, different land uses. So it's saying you can have residential here and only commercial there. And then, of course, within those categories, a lot of subcategories. So, for example, in most residential areas in U.S. cities, the only thing you can legally build is a detached single-family home. And then apartments are allowed in a few pockets in certain isolated places. That's the first thing zoning is trying to do. The second thing zoning does is it places fairly strict limits on density or the number of homes you can have or the amount of floor area that you can build in any given one place. Um, as I argue in the book, theoretically, this is meant to be tied to separating really incompatible uses or coordinating new growth with infrastructure investment. Uh, but in practice, those things haven't really materialized. And what we've ended up with is cities that are unaffordable, inequitable, and, and in many cases, sprawling and unsustainable. And that's something you can see every day. Uh, so how have these uh, zoning codes been misused? Yeah, so I think from the very beginning, what's happened with zoning is that it's been captured by certain special interests. Uh, it's been captured by, in many cases, the unrepresentative types of people who come to public hearings and push really hard for certain types of policies. And what it's gotten us is cities where it's very hard to build additional housing, especially in existing urban areas. It's very hard for cities to reinvent themselves. Uh, in many cases, you have vested interests in absolutely nothing happening. Uh, zoning is often basically used to keep cities in a straitjacket and not allow them to grow and adapt as needs and demands uh, change. So I think, you know, there's a lot of conversation happening even among planners about what do we want land use planning to do? We know this current zoning framework hasn't worked, but what comes next? Well, there's some wonderful European cities that are pedestrian and public uh, transportation friendly, and they're not car centric. Uh, the Grand Place in Belgium comes to mind. Uh, Amsterdam City Center in the Netherlands are just two great cities. Uh, what do these cities do right? It's a great question. You know, I think those cities are unique in that they emerged uh, at a time when 
the primary transportation technology was human feet, <laughs> right? So cities were were completely built around the the needs and capabilities of people walking. Uh, so of course, there's a mixture of land uses. There's a higher density, so more people can live in a smaller area. Of course, cities don't sprawl out or expand out infinitely. Uh, as transportation technology changed, of course, the form that cities take uh, changed pretty dramatically. So of course, many U.S. cities in the Sun Belt and the Mountain West uh, emerged in the age of the car. So of course they're much more spread out. I think another thing too, is that they emerged before we had anything like modern zoning. So uh, for most of human history, there really aren't rules saying, okay, we're going to have certain residential areas of the city. And then we're going to have certain commercial areas of the city. You might have rules for certain extreme and offensive uses like slaughterhouses or tanneries, uses that we know are going to have negative impacts on neighbors. But for the most part, uses were allowed to, to be mixed up, uh, cities were allowed to get gradually denser over time and iterate and learn over time. And essentially what zoning has done is it's kind of stopped that entire process. So U.S. cities, of course, look very different from European cities, in part because of that transportation technology fees, but in part because we have the zoning framework that doesn't actually let cities behave like cities. What are some of the confusions and myths around how American cities uh, regulate growth? Well, I think one of the first myths that I always have to deal with is this notion that the cities we have today are natural or just purely spontaneous and and that this is just what cities would look like. You know, the American city is one of the most heavily engineered systems of all time. I mean, we've completely built our city around, we've completely built our cities around cars, um, right? We've completely dictated exactly what you can build and where. Uh, the city that most, types of cities that most Americans live in today is heavily, heavily planned. Uh, but as I argue in the book, it's planning on the wrong margins. It's planning to do the wrong things. It's it's not planning, for example, for things like impacts or environmental mitigation or to build uh, more walkable uh, communities. But it's completely planned around the car, around segregated land uses, around segregating cities based on race and class. And that's the system that we've had essentially for the last 100 years. Well, uh, no zoning codes can also be a disaster. And what comes to mind is Houston. I've spent a lot of time there. And at one time, they had no zoning codes in the city or minimal zoning codes. And the place is a mess. Multiple downtowns. You've got a farm next to a dry cleaner. I mean, it's just uh, it's a crazy, uh, chaotic system. I don't think you're advocating for no zoning codes, but uh, talk a little bit about that. Well, I actually would argue that I think the zoning framework that we've inherited just doesn't get us what we want out of land use planning. You know, so Houston's an interesting case because you're right. Houston is the only major American city that doesn't have zoning. But my caution with Houston is Houston made almost every other planning mistake that could have been made in the 20th century. Right. I mean, they completely they built, <laughs> they, they built the urban freeways. They were a little bit callous about development in environmental areas. They had some some zoning like rules, like parking requirements uh, or until 1998 pretty strict minimum lot sizes that forced homes to be, you know, to sit on large lots. Um, but I would argue that to the extent that Houston didn't adopt zoning, actually, I think that's a, a one important mistake that they didn't make. So because they don't have this system where as a matter of law, uses are segregated, or as a matter of law, densities are strictly limited, Houston's actually able to reinvent itself, I think, easier than many other cities. Uh, Houston is, of course, one of America's most affordable and most diverse large cities. And for sure, you know, I think they have a lot of progress to be made on mobility planning, making sure that you have great bicycle and bus and transit infrastructure. They have a lot more progress to be made on things like environmental regulation and protecting wetlands and protecting sensitive natural areas. But I actually think that to the extent that they didn't adopt 
this zoning framework of segregating uses and restricting density, I actually think they're better positioned to uh, reinvent themselves. You know, so many U.S. cities, I'm, I'm, I'm in Los Angeles, for example, and one of the huge barriers to getting Los Angeles to a place where it's affordable and equitable and sustainable is these zoning rules that make it very hard to build infill housing or these zoning rules that make it very hard to build mixed use, mixed income, uh, maybe mid-rise apartment buildings on parcels that currently host a strip mall that's sitting half empty. Um, so to the extent that Houston doesn't actually have to deal with all of those problems that many other cities are struggling with, I think they're better positioned to correct a lot of the mistakes that they made. That's an interesting perspective. And another disaster is Detroit. You know, the car industry had such a strong lobby that they kept a lot of public transportation out so that they could sell more cars. Any, any thoughts or uh, experience with Detroit? Yeah, you know, I mean, Detroit's tough. There's a lot of, uh, going on there. You know, of course, with Detroit, part of the story is municipal fragmentation, white flight, suburbanization. Uh, there's a lot going on there. It is it is frustrating to look at a city like Detroit. And in many cases, they still have these rules on the books. They have these rules that actually make it hard to build. Uh, and when you're looking at a context where you have all this vacant land and all this vacant property, it's a little bit ridiculous that you still have some of these legacy zoning frameworks. And I think you're exactly right. You know, Detroit completely built itself around the car, completely built itself around a modern planning framework that I think hasn't really worked out and hasn't gotten us what we want. Um, you know, there, of course, are broader things going on with Detroit. You, you have zone, you know, you have zone cities like Los Angeles that thrive uh, in spite of their zoning. So I don't think that's part of it. You know, the way I frame this issue in the book is that I think zoning reform and even abolition is a necessary but not sufficient condition for getting the types of cities that we want. You also need to be very careful to regulate impacts, things like noise, light pollution, traffic congestion. You need to have planners doing that type of work. You need to have planners who think of themselves as stewards of the public realm, building great streets and great parks and ensuring that you have public services commensurate to growth. You need planners to play a proactive role in building that affordable housing that the, mar the market might, might not be able to provide. But as I argue in the book, when you don't have planning capacity being wasted, uh, counting the number of parking lots and uh, parking spaces in a strip mall or blocking fourplexes in, in residential areas. I think you can use that planning capacity to actually build the types of cities that we really want. What are your thoughts on Burnham and the plan that he did for Chicago, keeping all that open space uh, for the public? Yeah, you know, that's really fascinating. I mean, this, this is another sort of confusion, I think. People conflate zoning and planning. And, you know, zoning doesn't start to come online until 1916. Uh, there's a huge planning tradition before that. You know, of course, in the, in the Western tradition, uh, we have the ancient Greeks planning out street grids around an agora with a market and, you know, religious spaces. You look at the law of the Indies as Spanish uh, settlement of the New World, and they had the street grid with the, with the public plaza. Um, you know, for all of human history, humans have had this appreciation that, hey, we do need to sit down and plan out the public realm. You know, we need to have a plan for how our infrastructure is going to grow. We need to have a plan for stuff like water and sewer, these unsexy issues that are the basis for civilization. All of that work is really, really important. I think this additional layer that we put on top of that planning work in the 19-teens and that continues to today of we're going to try to master plan all development on private lots, or we're going to subject any sort of redevelopment of property to this extremely onerous uh, public review, I think is misguided. I think it's a dead end for planning. And I actually think we need to get back to the basics of, as I say, being stewards of the public realm. That's where planners can really add a lot of value. Well, that's a great nuance, uh, separating planning from zoning. Uh, and, mm -hmm. and thank you for making that. There has been some innovative progress out there in some municipalities, but oftentimes in government, when policy and legislation is created, there's unintended consequences. And so two of the areas that I've worked with that I thought were unique at the beginning, 
was uh, Portland and Toronto. Uh, their metro areas put in urban growth boundaries, and that protected the the out, outlying areas, mainly urban, uh, mainly rural agricultural areas from growth. Uh, what are your thoughts on urban growth boundaries? Yeah, you know, I think as with everything, there's trade-offs. Uh, so, you know, uh, I can understand, I can sympathize with a lot of communities that say we want to protect some of our natural areas. We want to pr protect some of our farmland. Uh, I'm from Lexington, Kentucky, which is uh, the first city in North America to adopt an urban growth boundary. We call it an urban services boundary. And it was done to protect the horse farms. Yeah, I'm very sympathetic to that. Uh, I understand that. Though I think what happens in a lot of cases with this is we say, okay, we're not going to have horizontal growth. We're not going to let the city expand outward. But if you're going to do that, you have to make sure that the city can build up. Otherwise, of course, you're not going to have the new housing production that you need. You're not going to have the urban infill that you need to keep a city diverse and vibrant and affordable. And so, of course, it's, you know, if you if a city's going to go that route, I think they have to be having a real conversation to say, what are the barriers that we can remove to make sure that we can infill and we can remain a healthy, growing, diverse community? But that growth is going to be up rather than out. I think that's appropriate. You know, and I think um, in context where I've seen urban growth boundaries work, uh, the urban growth boundary will incrementally expand over time. You know, and that, that might be appropriate. But then also, too, they make it very easy to build infill. So, you know, with all these policies, I think it's it's OK. It's totally appropriate to have a plan, but we need to have a real conversation about the trade offs and the the suite of policies that have to go uh, with an urban growth boundary. Yeah. And one of the unintended consequences I've seen in both those areas is that uh, uh, the property owners that own land in the uh, urban on the other side of the boundary don't get the appreciation. So they get very upset. And at some point, the city limits get pushed and they do need to eventually go into those areas. So it's mm -hmm. it's so complicated. So another thing that's very timely uh, that we can talk about, we are a show on sustainability, is uh, uh, climate change and how our infrastructure is not set up to handle uh, all these uh, either too much water or too little water, you know, um, corona mass ejections with electric magnetic waves. I mean, you name it, traffic. What are your thoughts on infrastructure and hardening cities to be more resilient to climate change? Where does you know, that fit in with that? That's a really great question. I mean, a few things on this. The first is, especially in the California context where I work today, what we've essentially done is we've made it very hard to build additional housing in the temperate, climate resilient environments in places like San Francisco or Los Angeles. Right? These are places that have good weather, and I think they're going to be fine even with even as temperatures rise. But what we've done is we've shifted all of that growth that we don't allow in temperate coastal climates to extremely hot uh, climate uh, 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 vulnerable places like the Mojave Desert or even further out to Las Vegas or Phoenix. I always joke California's unofficial growth policy is Phoenix, right? Uh, that's where people who are priced out of California are having to move. And so, of course, that's one slice of the issue is we've kind of misallocated a lot of our people and we forced a lot of people who want to live in a temperate climate resilient place like California uh, to go inland or to go into areas where they're at risk of wildfires or where they're at risk of floods. You know, our existing cities, we, we are very resilient in many cases, uh, places certainly on the coast. Uh, and that's where we, we need to actually be having a lot more growth, not only to preserve natural lands, but to keep people out of climate vulnerable uh, areas. You know, I think for sure this is a really important public, this is a planning problem even beyond zoning, is uh, we need to make sure that we have the infrastructure uh, to deal with some of these changes that are underway. And that's, you know, that's not ideological. That's just a matter of fact. There's going to be more floods. There's going to be more fires. Uh, there's going to be more extreme temperature events. And we need the infrastructure to be ready for that. 
So we've talked a lot about the problems. Let's get into the fun part, the solution. So in your opinion, what is the solution? How do we make more affordable, vibrant, equitable, and sustainable cities? So I think in the near term, there are a lot of reforms that we can make to zoning to make it uh, less destructive. So I think we're already seeing this happen all across the country, uh, cities dealing uh, with policies like minimum parking requirements, which assume that everyone will drive and mandate that all new development come with large parking lots or large parking garages. Of course, that's an issue for sustainability. That's also an issue for affordability. Those parking spots don't come cheap, right? As my as uh, as as my as my my mentor here at UCLA, Donald Shoup, always puts it, there's no such thing as free parking, right? Uh, the high cost of free parking. So you're seeing a lot of cities scrap these rules and say we're going to make it, we're going to legalize development that doesn't have parking, especially if it's near transit. At the state level too, I think you're seeing a lot of exciting zoning reforms. Uh, here in California, of course, we've legalized accessory dwelling units. ADUs, some people might know them as granny flats or mother-in-law units. These are additional homes that can be in backyards or garages or attics or basements. Uh, so allowing for more housing production to happen is infill and, and that's great for renters and homeowners. At the federal level, there's a little bit more conversation uh, about, you know, hey, if we're gonna give out some of this money, let's encourage local governments to ease up on some of these rules. But as I argue in the book, I think in the long term, what I would love to see among planners and people who are passionate about cities is what do we want out of land use planning? I, I think there's a growing consensus that zoning has failed to get us what we want out of land use planning. But what does that next system look like? What would it look like to actually move beyond zoning and create a, a system of land use planning that actually regulates the things that people actually care about? That's very interesting. Uh, in your opinion and in your research, have you found cities or policies that are working well? Yeah, well, so certainly the accessory dwelling unit reforms here in California have been huge. Uh, we now have five years of permitting data, and it seems like 60,000 units have been permitted. And that's all infill. That's all in existing urban areas. Uh, and in many cases, those are units being permitted in some of the most exclusionary suburbs that hadn't permitted a, an apartment uh, a building in their entire history. right? And now they're building all of these accessory dwelling units. So that's that's very exciting. You know, where we've seen minimum parking requirements uh uh, loosened up. So for example, in downtown Los Angeles, we had this existing stock of beautiful pre-zoning uh, offices and apartment buildings that literally were unusable because the parking requirements mandated that they would have to demolish the building and build a giant parking garage. When they eased up on some of those rules uh, over the last few years, we just saw an explosion of adaptive reuse of all of these existing beautiful buildings. And downtown Los Angeles really came back to life. Um, so, you know, I think this is a really great policy area because in many cases, some of the positive work, it costs local governments nothing to eliminate a bad rule or a rule that forces cities to be dysfunctional. Uh, and then you just unleash all of this creative energy of people thinking, you know, what, you know, all of these new possibilities of how we can do more info, how we can do more sustainable, walkable, uh, transit-oriented development that currently in many cases is illegal. Well, to your point, the building code promotes mediocrity, and it's one of the biggest <laughs> obstacles to, uh, you know, green infrastructure and green ideas. You know, it, it, uh, it, it gives a baseline that people need to meet, and, and no one exceeds it. So, yeah, I think that's a real challenge out there. Well, one thing I wanted to bring up, uh, I've had the uh, uh, opportunity like you to work both in New York City and, uh, and, and uh, L.A. And, and San Francisco, and one thing I noticed was that both those cities have very large, dense populations, and they also have the most special interest groups of, mm -hmm. of anywhere in the country. And when you have all that fracturing with special interest groups, how do you build consensus and change things? 
That's a really great question. It's a tough question. If I had the answer, I'd form a consulting agency <laughs> and uh, I wouldn't be writing books. No, in all seriousness, I, I think in California and in New York, we're, we're sort of hitting ahead on this issue. Uh, you know, the housing affordability crisis in particular in Los Angeles has become so acute uh, that it affects even people who supposedly benefit from housing scarcity, right? So even if you own a home in Los Angeles, yeah, your home value has gone up, but your children can't afford to live near you. Your neighbors are cashing out and moving away. Um, there's visible street homelessness all around you. You know, the community is is in a state of dysfunction. And it really does come down to because we just aren't allowing that new infill housing production to happen. The city's become completely unaffordable. Um, so, you know, here, I think it's it's overwhelming. When, when you survey Californians and you ask them, what are your top issues? The two things they say are housing related, homelessness and housing prices. And those two things, of course, are intimately related. Um, so, you know, there, I think we've really, we've really reached the end game of the zoning framework that we have today in California. And that's why I think there's so much reform energy happening here. And I would stress too, people, you know, there's this temptation, I think, in other states to look at California and say, well, the Californians just don't know how to run their state. Every other state is, you know, down the line from what California is dealing with right now. In many cases, the regulations in other states are just as strict and it's just as hard to build infill urban housing. Um, if you don't believe that Arizona and Utah and Idaho are going to be in a similar situation that California is in today, maybe 10, 15 years from, from now, uh, you got another thing coming. Like these are issues that every state and every city is going to have to deal with at some point. And I think there's a lot to be learned from the California experience. Well, you mentioned the top two things on the list, and I'm going to guess the third thing is congestion and traffic. And uh, <laughs> uh, why do we as citizens and as planners put up with congested uh, traffic ridden cities? Yeah, well, certainly we feel that acutely in Los Angeles, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I, I think part of it is that the the solutions uh, are things that 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 people uh, don't want to go along with. I mean, the way to solve traffic congestion is to have uh, congestion pricing on freeways to say, okay, we're going to apply a small nominal price to encourage people to carpool or to take transit or to not drive during peak uh, traffic times. Uh, that is the way that you solve traffic congestion is you apply a price to it and then you take that revenue that you've generated and you put it into great transit alternatives. So you say, yeah, we're going to make it a little bit more expensive for you to go and cause more traffic, but we're going to give you a great alternative. We're going to give you a great light rail or a, a bus with a dedicated lane or excellent bicycle infrastructure. Um, that is how cities, you know, in cities like London or Stockholm or Singapore, to the extent that they've gotten their traffic congestion crises under control, they've done it through congestion pricing and then putting that, investing that money into better transit. Um, New York City, of course, is is gearing up to adopt uh, congestion pricing uh, in Manhattan, I think south of the 60s. Um, so that's exciting, you know, that remains to be seen, of course, if that's gonna roll out, I'm very optimistic about that. But other cities should be exploring this. Um, you know, having a small price on traffic congestion to get congestion under control, and, and invest that into transit. I would say too, you know, there's this temptation to just build ever more lanes, just widen the freeways, destroy more neighborhoods, destroy more communities, just even more uh, uh, lanes, that'll solve the problem. We've been doing that for the past 50, 60, 70 years. And uh, you build that new lane and it just fills right up with traffic. Um, you know, the 405, of course, in Los Angeles, the Sepulveda Pass, they added an additional lane uh, and I think it was within one or two years, traffic congestion was actually worse uh, because more people just started taking uh, that particular route. So this is not an infrastructure problem. It really is a, we got to get the incentives right and we have to invest in great transit. 
Well, and to your point, Arizona is notorious for that. I, I think I was in the Phoenix area and I counted 22 lanes, uh, 11 each way. You know, mm-hmm. that, that doesn't solve the problem. Also, I think part of that is complete streets where we're building cities where they're not just for cars, but they're for everybody. So I, I'll tell you, I've been a student of cities and I found our discussion very intriguing. Uh, thank you very much for being on Green Sense, Nolan. I really appreciate your insight, and I thought the book was a great read. And uh, anything you want to say in closing? You know, I think this is, we're at an exciting moment with this issue. And I think folks who are, if you're a planner or if you're just a community advocate, uh, you know, I think this is the time where there's a lot of reform energy. And this is a really exciting opportunity where we can rethink how we plan our cities and what kind of cities we want. Um, You know, we're at an inflection point on housing and traffic and congestion and inequality and sustainability. And this is a moment where it's a moment. It's a time for reform. It's a time for thinking big. And so I invite people to do that with the book. And thanks so much for having me, Robert. Thank you, Nolan. My guest this week was M. Nolan Gray, author of the recently released book, Arbitrary Lines, How Zoning Broke the American City and How to Fix It. We enjoyed his thoughts on, on the solutions to make cities better. Green Sense is an independent radio show that relies on support from sponsors and patrons like you so that we can produce high quality audio broadcasts that promote innovators with sustainable solutions. Visit the greensensefarms.com website to learn more. I'm Robert Colangelo. Thank you for listening to Green Sense and catch the Green Sense Minute every Thursday and Sunday on 105.9 WBBM Chicago.